When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 259, and we're recording on December 1st. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. December. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. What is it, even? (laughs) Tis a thing. I was talking to Rebecca this morning about how, like, you know, you get to the end of the year usually, and it's like, new year, goal setting, da-da-da-da-da, but you, we, I don't have that kind of cool, fresh start sort of thing happening, because everything is the same, <laughs> and will be the same in January. <laughs> I just want to take a nap for two weeks, personally. <laughs> that is yes. Yeah, yeah. I did land on, like, if they start distributing a vaccine at the end of the month, like they're saying... And, you know, the Electoral College certifies the votes, then I will probably feel better about like, New Year, celebration, holidays, you know? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I'm still in like a mental crouch. Anyway, mental crouch. (laughs) Welcome to the show. (laughs) Show title. This is our super fun holiday recommendation episode, which we're probably going to do another one. We are going to do another one because we've got more questions. Yeah. So we'll have to do more than one. But this is the first round. So for those of you who are new, welcome. How the show works is that you send us your reading recommendation requests. Right now, they're all very holiday related because, you know, as we said, December, mental crouch. But they don't have to be. You can send them to us any time of the year if they're for you or for your book club or whatever gifts you want to give to someone for things that aren't holiday related. You can email those to us at getbooktobookriot.com or you can drop them in the form, which is in the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive, please put that in the subject line or in the first line of your request if you use the form. And we ask for your email address so we can email you back if we've already answered your question on the show. After almost 300 episodes, we do not expect you to know every question we've gotten. We know because we have great encyclopedic brains, but we do not expect you to know. (laughs) I don't know anymore, to be perfectly honest. I don't either. I don't either. That was was total BS. Okay, so (laughs) we don't have any feedback this week, um, probably because we had last week off. So we're just going to jump into it. Jen's going to read our first question, and then we will hear from our first sponsor, and away we will go. All right. Our first holiday gift giving request comes from Lini, who says, I'm looking for a gift idea for my 55-year-old brother-in-law. He's a retired jailer, anti-vaxxer, Republican who can trounce anyone at Jeopardy. He likes to learn things, but is not a huge reader. He's been on a Bill O'Reilly kick, but I would like to find him something with an alternative point of view that might still be interesting to him and keep him engaged. All right. Let us take a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dad 
dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. I'm just going to keep talking because I feel like I might as well go with the sort of perhaps too obvious answer. But here we are. Alex Trebek has a memoir called The Answer Is, as you might expect. And yeah, I have been hearing good things. This is on my TBR and I have been hearing that it is extremely readable, that there's lots of fun, facty information and like also some, you know, behind the scenes information. And I do feel like for any Jeopardy fan, this is a must have. We might also point family members to Alex's very moving Thanksgiving message that he obviously uh, recorded before he passed. That was all about like pulling together and being kind to each other. And that was really nice. So yeah, I, I'm recommending Alex <laughs> Trebek's memoir. That's the story. That's the story. So again, <laughs> it's called The Answer Is. And yeah, I, yeah, that's it. I cried when Alex Trebek died. I'm not going to lie. Oh, my gosh. I'm still like, it's very weird to watch Jeopardy now. with Because yeah. knowing that these were pre-recorded, obviously, but he's talking to the camera like it's real time. So like the episode before Thanksgiving, you know, he was like, oh, tomorrow's Thanksgiving. And I was just like, oh, it's 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 sort of that weird cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Uh, and it is. It's very unnerving. And it was only a month before he died and he looks fine. Like, it is very strange. It's very yeah. strange. Yeah. So. <sighs> anyway. Okay. Um, I picked The Line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu, which um, I think will appeal to your brother-in-law for a lot of reasons. Uh, he's a re- You said he was a retired jailer, and Francisco Cantu was a former Border Patrol officer. So he was raised in the, you know, southwestern United States. His mother was the daughter of a Mexican immigrant and, w- and was a park ranger. So he spent all of his childhood in, like, you know, the scrublands of the desert at the border. And so he joins Border Patrol as an adult after leaving college out of this need to like 
understand what was happening at the border in a way that had nothing to do with how he was raised. Like he didn't have much personal experience with what was going on there, even though he lived so close to that area. So it seems like an odd, odd is the word that I'm using. It seems like an odd choice to me to learn more about a thing by joining Border Patrol, which is you just hear all of these horrible stories. And so he wanted to know if they were true. And they, it turns out, yes, they are. They are actually pretty true. Um, and so he tells, you know, a lot of stories about him and his coworkers, his partners who were assigned jobs like, you know, guarding the border uh, that was uh, drug routes and, you know, places where they had to learn how to track people as they were crossing the desert and what they did with with people when they found bodies, what they did with people when they found them when they were alive. And after a certain amount of time, he gets to a point where he can't like handle participating in it anymore. So he leaves. He gets like a civilian kind of job. But then a friend of his goes to Mexico for a family funeral and can't get back into the country. So it, it takes on this whole new level of personal like, you know, stuff that's affecting Francisco's personal life. So I think this will hit a lot of notes for your brother-in-law, because it is coming from somebody who's in law enforcement. So, you know, there's that foundational thing that they'll have in common. Francisco has obviously got a more progressive point of view than what your anti-vaxxer brother-in-law probably has. But he is willing to go so far as, as joining a law enforcement agency to find out whether or not his progressive point of view is based in fact or just like nightmare stories that he's hearing from people. So um, it might, I don't know that it's going to, you know, change your brother's mind about anything, but it I think will be uh, eye-opening and will come from a place that he'll be willing to listen to. So that is The Line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu. All right, our next question is from Gwen, who says, I'm looking for a book for my 17-year-old brother for the holidays, but since I'm younger than him and I'm not really into the same books as him, I'm at a loss for what to purchase. He loves long epic fantasy series and horror. He's read a good chunk of all the Stephen King stuff and loved Dark Tower. Again, he's 17, so more adult books are fine. He just isn't a fan of a bunch of romance. Also, if your picks could be series that already have all or most of the books out, that would be much appreciated. Okay, Jen, what you got? I have for your brother the Poppy War series by R.F. Kuang. All three of them are out now, and they come with all of the trigger warnings. <laughs> but if he has read uh, Song of Ice and Fire and Stephen King. There's nothing in there that he has not already read, I'm pretty sure. This is a really intense, like, epic, grimdark fantasy series that is inspired by a lot of things, including uh, Chinese history and the Sino-Japanese War. And it is about a young woman who is, against a lot of odds, accepted to this very prestigious military academy. She aces this test, even though she has like no support and no money and whatever. And she gets to the academy and discovers that she has some powers. And then full-on war breaks out and she is uh, drafted into the war and everything kind of spirals out from there. I just finished this series, and I have a lot of feelings okay. about it. <laughs> so much hesitation. <laughs> it is a heartbreaker of a series. That ending, whoo, like I'm, yeah, it's it, like you can't talk about it because spoilers, but it's a journey. I, I'll, let's say it that way. It is a whole journey, and I think it's really well done. It's a really intensely visceral reading experience. You absolutely feel like you're there, which is, I feel like, you know, a prerequisite for so many of these epic fantasy uh, world-building series is you want to feel like you're immersed in it, and you absolutely are. 
I also think that one of the interesting things about this series, and I guess you could say this for like for Song of Ice and Fire as well, like George Martin has talked about it, how it's based on the War of the Roses. If you do even the most cursory of research into this series, the author has given a ton of interviews about the inspiration and there's like a lot of historical rabbit holes you can fall down. So if that's an aspect of especially historical fantasy that a reader likes, this is good for that as well. But regardless of that, it is just it is a whole journey. And I think it's really, really well done. And it is a complete trilogy. So again, that's The Poppy War by R.F. Kuang. Um, I picked Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Moore, which is the first book in a trilogy, and the third book is not out yet, I'm sorry to say, but it is coming out next year, and the, you know, the first two are out. So, you've got most of them, shruggy. Anyway, um, so, <laughs> I picked this because I feel like a 17-year-old boy, I feel like Gideon is a 17-year-old boy, first of all, <laughs> even though she is not <laughs> a 17-year-old boy, but... She's like this character. She's a swordsman and is very gruff and like crude and has a lot of like dirty magazines that she carries around. And Gideon is raised on this horrifying necromancer planet that is like cold and dark. And she's an orphan and she's raised by nuns and with like no love or affection. And the reverend daughter of the the planet that she lives on, who like is the ruler of this planet, is very young. She's 19 or 20, I think, when the book opens. Her name is Harrow Hark. And she gets invited by the emperor to the emperor's planet to do this, like, test of wits, along with the necromancers of the other houses. There are nine houses, hence the title, in this universe, to do this, like, test and trial of the wits of the necromancers to fulfill this thing that the emperor needs them to do. But Harrow Hark cannot go without a, like, companion. Uh, and so she picks Gideon, to do that, even though they were raised together and hate each other, hate capital H, het, hate each other so much. But neither they, for a series of like reasons, neither of them have much of a choice. So they travel together to this other planet and undergo these like tests and trials. It's pretty violent and crude and goofy. There's like a lot of nods to the office, which is super weird because it's <laughs> necromancers in space. And I will say that like when this book first came out, it was billed as necromancer lesbians in space and that is true but there's very little romance in it like almost none like if you had if it had been billed as sam and frodo but ladies in space necromancers with dirty magazines i also would believe that like the romantic part is almost non-existent so i don't think that's gonna bother you know a reader who doesn't want to deal with romantic content but it's like funny but funny in a way that a 17 year old boy would deeply appreciate there's a lot of that's what she said there's a lot of like sex jokes but also a lot of defeating bone monsters with swords it's great it's so much fun it's so much fun it is perfect for a 17 year old boy and also a 35 year old mom that's me so getting the knife <laughs> is the name of it and it's by tamsin moore <laughs> so good <laughs> All right. Our next question comes from Jean, who says, I was hoping you could help me find a couple good books to give my father for Christmas this year. His favorite genres tend to be historical fiction, which I don't read much of personally, or science-y nonfiction. He is a retired anesthesiologist with a passion for plants. Some books he has read and enjoyed are Gentlemen in Moscow, Bill Bryson's books, Cutting for Stone, Barkskins, Ken Follett's books, and Mary Roach's books. Caitlin Dowdy is already on his list as my younger sister was considering pursuing mortuary science for a time. What an interesting family you have, first of all. I know. That's so cool. <laughs> okay, so I picked, sorry, not sorry, I picked Braiding Sweetgrass, the gift edition specifically, by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I picked this because you said he has a passion for sciencey nonfiction and for plants. 
This is like an ideal gift because it is written by a botanist who is also of indigenous heritage. And Kimmerer is doing such an amazing job in here of talking about like how amazing plants are and the different ways that we approach them, like scientifically, culturally, personally. Uh, It's also a memoir, I think, like, it's not Bill bryson in that she is not a, like, snarky old white man. Um, mm. But, like, in the same way that Bryson is braiding personal experiences into his nonfiction, that is what she is doing as well. She's bringing in her own experiences um, as a mother, as a teacher, and just all kinds of different aspects to this book. And this gift edition is stunning. I have a copy. It is beautiful. There are these lovely illustrations. There are, like, the page is really nice. It's just so nice, y'all. It's so nice. It's a really good gift option. So again, that is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, and the illustrator of the gift edition is Nate Christopherson. I picked Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rucker Bregman, and it's translated by Elizabeth Manton and Erica Moore. And I recommended this on the show a couple of weeks ago. I think it's a really great pick for a dad for a dad <laughs> for a dad who's like got a background in science and likes generalized nonfiction and who had a hard year. You mentioned in the question that he could be a little depressive and you know this has been kind of a hard year for him. So Humankind is a book about how the assumptions that we have made about how people are inherently selfish are all wrong. And it's very science heavy. It's based a lot on archaeology, anthropology, and evolutionary biology. Um, and his basic thesis is that humans are not horrible, selfish monsters who evolved to, um, you know, protect only themselves. Humans are actually overgrown puppies who evolved to socialize with each other and, and like act in the kindest way possible so that they don't get expelled from their group. He also takes a lot of studies that your father as a as a doctor is probably going to be pretty familiar with, like the Stanford prison study um, and those sorts of things. And the Kitty Genovese case, which is wasn't a study, but is talked a lot about in like psych 101 classes. I remember hearing about it in college or reading about it in college and deconstructs them. And it, you know, it turns out that a lot of those studies that show that, you know, if you give people a little bit of power, they will become sadists or the idea behind the Kitty case that you know, people will mind their own business, even if someone's being killed in front of them are all like just wrong, like the way they reported it were wrong, they were set up to have a very specific result, so that the researcher could get famous, like all of it, they just dismantles a lot of these really, really famous um, studies that have been used to justify the idea that people are inherently bad. And I think that this is a really nice gift to give somebody at the end of 2020 <laughs> when we're all like, there is no good left in the world. There is like there is we've all human humanity has always had really, really hard patches um, that we have eventually recovered from. And it's it's almost never been because people are just inherently bad. So I think that a science based general nonfiction hopeful thing might be good for your father. So that's Humankind by Rucker Bregman. Our next question is from Angela, who says, I'm looking for a book to get for a friend for Christmas. She's a middle school science teacher, but she's trying to get into a high school. So I usually get her science-based books. Years past, I've gotten her The Emperor of All Melodies and Get Well Soon. She suffers from depression and climate change can be a trigger. So while I think she would love Lab Girl, I think it might be too much, especially this year. 
Okay, I'm going to keep going. Uh, I think Lab Girl probably will be too much. It's, it's a lot. It's very sad. There's got a lot of sad parts. So I picked something entirely unrelated to uh, climate change or to people at all, and it is The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs by Stefan Broussat. And I, I look, <laughs> I know that your friend is a middle school science teacher and not a seven-year-old boy. Like, I get it. But I read this and I loved it. And I think anyone with a, a, a passing general interest in science will also super like it. I'm not like a dinosaur person or specifically a science person, but I found it really, really interesting and very easy to comprehend. So this is like exactly what it sounds like, Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. It's an overview of the history of dinosaurs. The author is a pretty famous paleontologist from the University of Edinburgh. Um, he specializes in evolution. And he starts at the Triassic period when dinosaurs came to be, which was right after a different mass extinction, and then, you know, goes up to the point where the dinosaurs were eradicated. And it's so nerdy. Like, it's so nerdy, but in a really accessible way. It's long, but it doesn't feel like you're reading a textbook. He's really, really funny. And, you know, you're going to remember everything, almost everything he's talking about from childhood. Like, if you've seen Jurassic Park, you're probably going to recognize most of the animals that he talks about. And there are no people. <laughs> there are no people in it. All of the extinctions that happen in this book ha are completely unrelated to the dumb things humanity has done to the planet. So I think that it's a great way to nerd out without having to feel concerned or worried or or anything because we aren't making volcanoes happen so that's nice yay us so that's the rise and fall <laughs> of the dinosaurs by stefan brusat <laughs> love it okay <laughs> i am so excited to recommend to you once upon a time i lived on mars by kate green i i think i talked about this on a hand cell because i was just like i am hearing nothing about this book it came out you know in 2020 in a time when the news cycle is dominating and i just feel like it needs more love and I think it would be great for your friend. It is by a science journalist who actually like grew up wanting to be and like almost training to be an astronaut. And she ends up taking part in a study, it's a simulated Martian environment run by NASA on the slopes of Mauna Loa in Hawaii. And they like built this dome, right? They build a dome and they put a bunch of people in it. I think it was like seven or eight people. Uh, oh, no, five, five people, including Kate is six. So they all go and they're going to live in this dome for four months. And like they've they're simulating everything like the time lag that would be involved in communicating with, quote unquote, Earth. They are, you know, they can only use the supplies that they have. They are looking at all kinds of different things to figure out, like, group dynamics seems to be the the majority of the point of the experiment. Like, what impact does cooking together, for example, from, like, quote-unquote, fresh, as fresh as possible ingredients have on a group in a long-term, you know, space situation? Like, does that help? Morale, as a just as a for example, what does the isolation do to them? How do they cohere or not cohere? What do they fight about? Like all of these like social sort of things. Um, there's sleep studies. There are other kinds of experiments going on as well. And it's super interesting. And Green also brings in, you know, some strands from both her background as a scientist and uh, from her personal life. So, like, you know, she is uh, she's married at the time of the experiment start. And, like, she and her wife, like, have to figure out, like, how to, you know, navigate a interplanetary relationship, which is complicated. 
And then she, you know, she touches on things that are very pressing to all of us, like climate change. But this is such a gentle book, like, and it it doesn't ever get to the point where you feel depressed about it. Instead, it's just like a really lovely window into this this very unique and interesting experience. And Green is such a good writer. She's so good at drawing us in and, like, portraying, like, yeah, what it's like to live in a dome for four months with some relative strangers and, like, you can't leave. Like, you can't go anywhere. Oh, my gosh. This is I'm just like thinking about now how relevant this <sighs> is to COVID life. But, yeah, it is it is super relatable. It's super interesting. And I just I just found it one of the nicest escapes of nonfiction reading that I did this year, plus very scientifically interesting. So, again, that's Once Upon a Time I Lived on Mars by Kate Green. All right. And it is time for another sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Our next question comes from Kendall, who says, looking for a Christmas book for my 10-year-old nephew. He loves a rags-to-riches type story, especially about sports. A recent fave was Unstoppable by Tim Green. Last year, I got him The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, and he loved it. Amanda, what did you pick? I picked Reaching for the Moon, which is Katherine G. Johnson's autobiography. Katherine Johnson was, uh, if you've seen Hidden Figures, she's the main character of Hidden Figures. As a young girl, Katherine, you know, proved to be a mathematical genius. 
and skipped several grades. And when she got to college, she had a professor who wanted her to, you know, go super far professionally as a mathematician. But as a female and a black female in the 50s in America, there were quite a few obstacles in her path, um, all of which she overcomes. And in the early 50s, she joins the organization that would eventually become NASA and helps uh, put the Apollo 11 mission out into space and then onto the moon. And we never would have gotten there without her, like, bananas genius brain, which, ah, look, I... <laughs> I'm not good at math, like in that very stereotypical way that middle-aged women say they're not good at math. I know that. I hate it. It's a cliche and I hate it, but it's true. I am not good at math. And watching this movie, when I watched Hidden Figures, I don't know if the formulas they're like putting up on the the chalkboards when all the characters are doing these calculations are real or not, but it just looked like hieroglyphics to me. And for someone to to be able to do that kind of stuff in their head, which Catherine could do, you know, legitimately, not just in the movie, it's just so mind boggling. So she goes from being, you know, a very marginalized person in our society to being responsible in large part for putting humanity on another body in space. Like that is such a, I don't know if she became literally rich, like wealthy rich after that. I have no idea, but that is just a trajectory that I find so impressive and amazing. It's a great movie. And her autobiography is written for kids. It's classified a few different ways on Goodreads. Like there are some that have it classified as middle grade, but it's also quite long. It's like 250 pages, which seems a bit long for middle grade, but it's big print. I don't know. So I think a 10 year old will be fine, especially a 10 year old who got through the boy who harnessed the wind. I think that this will be totally doable. So that's Reaching for the Moon, the autobiography of NASA mathematician Katherine Johnson by Katherine Johnson. Nice. I might need to read that. I'm also not a math person. Okay, so I picked Outcasts United, the Young Readers edition by Warren St. John. And this is a really interesting book. It is about a soccer team in Georgia, in like small town Georgia, outside of Atlanta, that was almost entirely made up of refugee immigrants. And it's a super interesting story in a lot of ways. The coach uh, is a woman named Luma Mufla, who is from Jordan. And she was educated in the States and like didn't go back home and was cut off from her family for pursuing an education and, you know, job prospects in the U.S. rather than going back and like marrying and doing the things that were expected of her. And she was an athlete and had good experiences with that and was like kind of in between jobs slash struggling uh, when she like happened upon like she was like driving around for some reason doing errands and she happened upon this field of like, you know, children who were clearly from all different kinds of ethnicities playing soccer in a way that she like felt very nostalgic about. And so she comes to find out that this town, Clarkston, has been used as like a resettlement point by a lot of different uh, nonprofits dealing with refugees in the United States. And, you know, she's like, oh, I like these kids need a coach. And so she decides to start a soccer program. And so you find out a lot about these uh, families and why they have come to the United States and what they are fleeing uh, violence of all kinds. And then their difficulties in, you know, the actual resettlement part and then on and off the soccer field. And, you know, I'm recommending this with some notes, I guess, is what I want to say, because, yeah, kind of like Amanda said, it says it's for young readers. I do think it's pretty 
it's at a higher reading level for that age group. But again, it sounds like your nephew is a good reader and I think probably will be fine. There's also, you know, there are some topics that I think are you're going to want, somebody will want to discuss with your nephew. Like, for example, um, there are some details, not like graphic, but some details of the violence against women and children that these families have undergone that could bear some discussing. There's also, you know, Luma's coaching style is like, it's not like full on like cheer level of you know, intensity, but it's not, it's on that spectrum. It's very, like, gruff and sort of aggressive. And, you know, she has, like, policies about hair that, like, you're, like, telling, like, you know, a young, like, black kid that they have to cut off their braids is, like, a choice. That's a choice. Um, And you understand, like, her perspective on it. But I think it would be worth, you know, reading along with your nephew and, like, talking about some of these things. Like, oh, like, what do we think about that? Like, it's a question. Let's think about it. Like, it's not, it doesn't need to be prescriptive, I guess is what I'm saying. But I think what he will love about this book is, like, it is all about how, like, love of sports and love of the game and how it brings people together in unexpected and really interesting ways and, like, what it can do for somebody who is struggling to find their place in a new country, in a new town. Um, so, yeah, I think it. I think it's very in his wheelhouse. So, again, that is Outcasts United by Warren St. John. All right. Our ne- Man, we are moving. Wow, question six. <laughs> our next question is from Beth, who says, I would like to find a cozy Christmas read. I'm down for any genre, though if it is romance, I would prefer a women-loving women if possible. It's not something I've come across before, but Christmas is my favorite time of year. Any help for this Christmas nerd slash bookworm? Okay, I picked Written in the Stars by Alexandria Belfleur, which is new. It just came out last month and is a lesbian holiday rom-com. It was kind of, it was pitched as like Bridget Jones meets Pride and Prejudice, but gay and now. So, you know, not Regency. Um, And I found it super cute, also very (laughs) infuriating because it is, it is like Pride and Prejudice, but the Darcy character, whose name is Darcy, she's a woman with red hair, her name is Darcy, is so uptight. You just want to, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me stop. Okay, so Darcy is a actuary. For a life insurance company, she's kind of wealthy. She's very, like, particular and, ugh, like, Darcy and Pride and Prejudice. She's kind of got a stick up her butt. Like, she's just, like, a little uptight and kind of a snob and whatever. And then the other main character, her name is Elle, and she is an astrologer on the internet. <laughs> she's a social media astrologer. She runs a, an account called Oh My Stars. She believes in soulmates and wants to find her soulmate. And then Darcy's brother, who is Elle's business partner, sets her up with his sister, Darcy. They sets them up on a blind date that goes terribly wrong, like goes so bad, again, in a very Pride and Prejudice sort of way, where they meet. Elle is late. She acts kind of flighty. Darcy's a snob about Elle's life and beliefs and, you know, her career. Wine is spilled. Dresses are ruined. Snarky conversations are overheard. It's like a whole disaster. But then Darcy tells her brother that they hit it off, mostly to get him off of her back, trying to set her up with other people to, to date. And, you know, Elle finds out that Darcy told this lie that they had this great date when it was actually terrible. She confronts Darcy and Darcy's like, look, why don't we just pretend to be together for the holidays so I can keep my brother off my back and he won't keep setting me up for pe- with people over Christmas. And then we can go to your family's celebrations and they'll get off your back about how you can't find anyone who makes you happy. We will pretend to love each other 
In fact, we deeply hate each other. It'll be fine. Readers, <laughs> it is not fine. <laughs> so this is what they do. They like pretend to be into each other over the holidays. They fake it till they make it with both of their families and like go to all of these holiday celebrations. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. And I really like I, I ended up being cool with Darcy in the same way that you like end up being cool with Mr. Darcy and Pride and Prejudice. Although some people don't because he's still kind of a stick in the mud. And Darcy is still an insurance actuary. Like, I don't even know. She's still kind of a stick in the mud. Uh, but she gets to be more and more respectful of Elle's um, astrology career and starts to appreciate that this, like, kind of goofy, whimsical creature in front of her is not here to disrupt her, you know, structured life. She's here to, like, add some fun. Anyway, so they, like, fall for each other. It's a romance. It's just very heartwarming and cozy and nice. So that's Written in the Stars by Alexandria Belfour. I also picked a romance because, like, all I needed was an excuse to go yes, looking yes. for a holiday rom. And I am recommending to you Mangoes and Mistletoe by Adriana Herrera, which is my first Adriana Herrera, and now I have to read more. And this is a novella, and I got it digitally. Uh, I don't know that there are print editions, but it was through my library, which is nice. And it is... Oh, my goodness. Like, there could not have been a premise more designed for me personally to be excited to read it. It is a romance that takes place on the set of a holiday baking competition. Like, come on now. <laughs> and the two main characters are Kikia. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm trying. She's from the Dominican Republic. She is in the States sort of on her own. And she is a pastry chef who is like really struggling to make a name for herself. And um, she has like her eye on the prize. She's going to win this competition. Like she needs the job that you get if you win as well as the money to like make her career happen. Like this is all she cares about. So she goes to Scotland and she's like, all right, I'm going to like live in this castle and like bake these things and I'm going to win. And this is what needs to happen. So she's very focused. And then Sully, who ends up being paired with Kikia, who it's like, it's not, they don't get to pick their partners. She is like a home cooking, you know, person. They're pairing up a professional with a home cook. Uh, and she is also of Dominican uh, descent. And she's like very like into her heritage and like, you know, calls herself a baking brujita. And she's like here to have fun. Like she's here to have a good time. And you would think that they would get paired up and like everything would be fine. But in fact, everything is not fine. <laughs> like Sully's attitude is just too laid back. And like they have all of these like misconceptions communications about like what kind of flavorings to use because Kikia doesn't like want to like be like stereotyped uh, about flavors and like always have to do like you know the Dominican thing or whatever like she's got some hang-ups around her heritage for good reasons that we find out but like it's a whole thing so they're like at each other's throats but they're also desperately attracted to each other as one might expect and the story unfolds from there and it's very steamy and I really loved the incorporation of the baking challenge elements into like the development of their relationship and the ending gave me heart eyes so like I feel like you will enjoy it too uh, again that's mangoes and mistletoe by Adriana Herrera all right oh man we are rolling along and our last question <laughs> is from Michaela who says I'm looking for a book for my husband he's not a reader but he likes mysteries when he was younger he read Sherlock Holmes and Lord of the Rings that's the only books he can name for me 
He said I could buy him a mystery and I need help. He doesn't want it to be long, maybe a novella or under 300 pages. He said it's okay if it's a little sci-fi. He said he might be interested in Agatha Christie because he liked the movie Murder on the Orient Express. He's giving me a lot of ideas, but I obviously have no idea where to start. Any help would be awesome. All right, Amanda, what did you pick? I picked Resurrection Bay by Emma Viskic, which is a murder mystery that takes place in Australia. It, mm, is it Australia or is it New Zealand? No, yeah, it's Australia. And it's pretty short. It's under 300 pages. It's like 275 pages. And it's about a guy named Caleb who is a private detective and he is profoundly deaf and has been since childhood. And so his detectiving, you know, obviously like looks different than what a, a quote-unquote like typical detective would be, at least in mystery fiction. And I picked this both because it's kind of short, but also because it feels very Agatha Christie-ish in that the victim, because it's a murder mystery, as all Agatha Christie novels are, the victim is Caleb's childhood friend. And he is a police officer who you know, knows no stranger and has no known enemies, is not in any way crooked, and then is helping Caleb with uh, one of his private investigation cases, doing a little bit of like freelancing for him on the side. And then he turns up dead. And it becomes this, you know, kind of very Christie-ish thing where this beloved community figure is murdered. And is it because he has capital S secrets? Or was he involved in something shady? Or like what? And so Caleb, the detective, has to go out into the world and figure out what's happened to his friend while also trying to solve the case that his friend was helping him with because like, aren't they? They should obviously be connected, right? Um, And his partner, Frankie, is an ex-cop who works with him, who has like kind of a checkered past. She's a recovering alcoholic. And it turns out that the the case is a little bit more personal to Caleb than he initially thought his brother might be involved. His brother is a recovering drug addict uh, and his ex-wife might be involved. There's a whole storyline with him and his ex-wife that is like real steamy, actually. And very like emotional and Caleb is such a fascinating detective because he is you know I mean he's deaf so he's got all of these things these like ways he has to compensate for that in his professional life but he also uses it in a lot of really interesting ways to like engender trust in in a person or to read the lips of people across the room you know who who don't think that he can understand what they're what, what they're saying and uh he's also got this like He's got a lot of trauma from his from his early life. Um, and so he and his relationship with his wife becomes like super complicated. Anyway, it's just it's a it's like a character study. I mean, you're deeply here for the, you know, finding out who killed this this friend of his. Right. But um, in the same way that like, you know, you read the Poirot mysteries and you're like this this dude is like, I'm here for this dude. You know, like <laughs> I'm here for Poirot and his mustache and the way that he does that kind of silly walk and his like hat and his fastidiousness. You're kind of here for that sort of thing with Caleb where like his personal quirks, his like inability to be nice to this one specific person and you got to find out why, you know, and like the things that he becomes very particular about and the the things that inform his relationship with his wife, like all of that, you're like very much here for that kind of stuff too. The details of this character that she's written are great and great hooks. So that's Resurrection Bay by Emma Viskic. I also picked something that feels very Sherlocky slash Christie, and that is A Study in Scarlet Women by Sherry Thomas. Just a trigger warning generally for folks that this does include uh, child abuse and sexual assault mentions. So this, I picked it because it's part of a series. 
And so if he likes it, there's more. It's the Lady Sherlock series. And what Sherry Thomas is doing is sort of reinventing Sherlock Holmes as a woman in that same time period, um, which does present some challenges for how she goes about solving cases. For example, she sort of does it under the name Sherlock Holmes, and everybody thinks that Sherlock Holmes is actually like this friend of hers, but it's her. Um, and so she has like a she's like a detective B. It's interesting. Um, And she also, you know, has to figure out how to support herself as a woman who, like, can't earn money from solving cases. Like, that's not a thing she can do. Uh, So she, uh, yeah, she's so, she's such a fun character. And the mysteries are really well plotted. It is longer than you were asking for. It's like 300 pages, but it reads so fast. Like, it doesn't feel long, I don't think. You're just totally caught up in the mystery aspects and then, like, the whodunit. And as Amanda said, like, really, you know, I think especially with things like Sherlock Holmes, like, you're there for the characters and the character dynamics. Like, oh, you know, he's such a specific type of character. And Charlotte, has her own very specific sort of charm to her. And I just really, I love Sherry Thomas's work. I love this series. I think that, yeah, it's a really fun addition to, especially for fans of that Sherlock Holmes paradigm. Like, it's a fun new spin on it. And it's just, yeah, it's just great. So again, that's A Study in Scarlet Women by Sherry Thomas. That's the first book in the series. There are a bunch. And that's our show. Hooray! Merry, merry, happy, happy, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Please go leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors uh, for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Where is Jen? I am also mostly on Instagram at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will be back next week. <laughs>